Hey y'all, welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I chat with a brilliant author, Susan Butler, whose debut novel, Signet, was published by Dialogue Books in April. Signet is a beautiful coming-of-age story that everyone needs to read. It's set on Swan Island, a very unique place to live, particularly for the kid, a 17-year-old who is stranded with the island's community of old-age separists. With no guarantee of when she'll see her parents again, the kid experiences ups and downs of being unwanted by the elderly residents, and much to her disappointment, her family. I absolutely loved this book and my chat with Susan. We talked about Signet, the important themes woven throughout the story, such as climate change and ageism, and why it's absolutely vital that younger and older generations band together to take on the challenges of the world today. I really hope you enjoy our episode. So it is a beautiful day outside, and I am here with the extremely talented Susan Butler in Waterstones Hitchin. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to talk to you about your amazing book. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. I want to delve straight in because I have a lot of questions, and I want to make sure that we get to them all. So for people who are unaware, although I don't think that there are very many of them now, you have written a gorgeous debut called Signet and it's definitely I can say without a doubt one of my favorites of 2019 and I would love for you to just go into what the book is about. The setup before the novel opens we've got a community of older people who have decided that they want to completely reject mainstream society and so they are a kind of group of old age separatists uh, who've moved out to Swan Island, a, a small island in the Atlantic. And so in their separatist society, they only allow people who are over 65 to live with them. One of this group has a granddaughter who's been taken into care by social services because the parents are uh, struggling with drug addiction and other kinds of instability. So her granddaughter comes to live with her, but in the meantime, uh, the grandmother dies and um, the granddaughter, who's the protagonist of the novel, can't get in touch with her parents. So she's there on this island kind of stuck between a a separatist society who doesn't want her there or the possibility of going back to the mainland but risking never seeing her parents again. On top of that, her house is situated on a cliff on the coast of the island and the cliff is slowly eroding away. So she's in a kind of doubly unsafe situation. And over the course of the three days of the novel, she's got to decide what to do. Oh my gosh, that is quite a story. I love it. I think that, you know, you've just touched on a few of the themes in the book and there's some beautiful irony. The cliff, you know, kind of eroding away, I think is really great. As I was reading this book, the whole time I was thinking to myself, okay, so we have this character and she's been kind of placed here involuntarily but also at the same time throughout the book we do see her start to blend in we do see her kind of settle in and feel a bit more comfortable there's obviously challenges and ups and downs that come with it but the kid she is rather wise for being only 17 years old isn't she she does have to grow up quite quickly in that environment doesn't she there's a combination of growing up the the kinds of dysfunction but also the other sort of sideways opportunities 
come from being raised by people who are in addiction and being raised kind of uh, below the poverty line without secure housing. I think all of those things will make you uh, grow up quite quickly. Then there's also the, the question of culture and uh, how we end up assimilating with the culture and her immediate culture is a, a geriatric culture, one that really um, celebrates aging. And I mean, even though she is kind of isolated on this island, one would think that if you were put in this situation that you could just detach yourself from it, pull up in your house, make the best of your situation. But she does start to befriend the residents of Swan Island. She does start to really identify with their way of life, their behavior. And I think there are parts where the behavior is mirrored, which I think is really interesting. I was just wondering, why did you pick Signet as your title? Is that kind of our first introduction to the clever way that you put irony into the book in the sense that she is the baby swan on this swan island. Is that essentially what you're thinking? The signet thing has kind of two meanings here because I'm quite interested in fairy tales and adaptations and um, how storytelling evolves with teller. And um, so in a way, this is a retelling of the ugly duckling. Um, oh, right. There's a, there's a young person who's... Um, quite the sort of essentially different uh -huh. from the people that she's sort of immediately around. There's that difference that's almost insurmountable. But the other meaning kind of relates to one of my favorite books, a less well-known one of uh, Simone de Beauvoir's book called The Coming of Age, which does some of the same things that I want to do with Signet. A coming of age as in from adolescence into adulthood but also deals with other people who are approaching the coming of age as an old age. Oh, I see. The different uh, parallels with that. Yeah, yeah. And de Beauvoir talks about how we sometimes resist seeing ourselves as the old people that we will eventually become. And so on this island called Swan, the protagonist has begun to identify with the swan that she will someday be. Yeah, so those were the, the two things, you know, sort of both this separation and alienation, but also the trajectory of her life that she can see outside of the context of a mainstream culture that really marginalizes old age. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. I will go into kind of the subject of ageism in a bit, but the idea that we kind of fast forward to what will essentially be our lives later on in life. Because if you think about it, on an everyday basis, you're not completely surrounded by people who are over 65. And I think it's really interesting in the book how the kid, she does kind of resist it at the beginning. She's kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm here, but I, I don't want to know. She never apologizes for who she is. She never strays away from who she actually is. But at the same time, she does question, I think, who she is around these people. And, and perhaps almost doesn't at times feel all that comfortable with who she is around these people. Essentially, she is tasked with being in the present in terms of this is what her life is at this exact moment. But by being around people who are over 65, she is forced to also address the fact of, as you said, who she's going to be later in life. You know, am I going to have the same fate? Am I going to be like these people when I'm 65 plus. But for someone who's 17, you know, almost 60 years in advance seems like it, you just can't fathom it, can you? But she is forced to kind of face that because she's in that environment, isn't it? It's very interesting. Yeah, that's definitely present there. There's also a question, I think, of um, what happens when you 
enter someone else's kind of privilege. This is their safe space. And as much as there are really excellent things about the little culture, that they, uh, she also realizes, and the swans do too, that this place isn't for her. And so the tension becomes a question of um, overstepping bounds. Um, how much can you assimilate to a culture that's um, that essentially is built on excluding people like you? Yeah, and they don't make it easy for her either. I mean, she has little pockets of friends, but Nick, who's her neighbor, does not make it easy for her at all and makes it very clear early on in the book that they are not friends. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that this is the question of um, kind of separatist politics. Uh, how much do you have to enforce separation in order to um, protect a kind of threatened or marginalized culture? And to what extent is coalition valuable? And so we might even think of this in groups like uh, the Black Panther, where uh, there's definitely a, a particular kind of identity mix that mm -hmm. goes into the political organizing, while at the same time, people like Fred Hampton were reaching out to groups of the white poor who were organized in Appalachia, and um, groups of Puerto Rican Americans who, uh, who were organizing in inner city Chicago to find those coalitions without anyone having to dampen down the very identity-specific reasons for their political. Yeah, exactly. And they all bonded on common ground in terms of not wanting to be marginalized, not wanting to be misrepresented, not wanting to have their voices dampened down because they had, you know, something to say. And so they looked for those people who believed in the same thing that they did. And I think Nick and the hardline separatists that he represents are the ones who are not looking to form those kinds of coalitions, ultimately will make marginalized people stronger. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also a degree of the Swan Island residents feeling like they have earned the right to be separated from the rest of the world. And as you said, this is their safe space. And when kind of a unwelcomed intruder comes and and I think as well the kid perhaps for the Swan Island residents represents a bygone era and time gone by and that's not something they want to remember when they're on their island I think so it's really interesting so going back to the actual setting itself so we learned that Swan Island is one of 10 islands 10 miles off the coast of New Hampshire as Americans, we know that the Isle of Shoals is a real place, but Swan Island is, is a fictional location. And I was just wondering, you've been over in the UK for almost 20 years. Why did you choose that little part of the United States to base your book? I knew that I wanted to write a book that was about climate change, the current climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to think about it as something that is close and affecting us in the here and now. So I wanted to choose a setting that isn't in the future and isn't far, far away. The theme of kind of um, alienation and separation seemed to lend itself to an island, but I didn't want it to be a tropical island. And so there was something about the shoals, aside from being both completely stunning and also filled with some historical meaning, yeah. that kind of struck me as, uh, as perfect. So the setting is mostly based on Star Island, which is one of the islands in the shoals mm -hmm. where I went out and did a little bit of research. That's so cool. I love that. It's a location that isn't very well known 
I would say yeah. probably by readers in terms of I had to Google it myself and be like, I think I know where this is. It says New Hampshire, but I just have to make sure. I want to go into your main character. So the kid who, as I kind of said at the beginning, she definitely has to grow up quite quickly, as you said, having parents who are struggling with drug addiction and going to a new environment at such a young age such an impressionable age as well where I think we can all remember being 17 gosh that feels like ages ago we can all remember being 17 and really feeling like we can take on the world and then to kind of be somewhere you least expect and the kid is she experiences ups and downs throughout her childhood particularly for someone her age and the fact that she is the only young person on the island with a majority of an older generation is like I said earlier it's such a clever concept and one that I don't think has really ever been explored before which is very unique and it goes into that topic of ageism and I'd really love to know your thoughts about this this topic of ageism where if you look at it from a industry level particularly somewhere like Hollywood. There's a hilarious scene in the movie The First Wives Club where Goldie Hawn, oh, I love that movie too, Goldie Hawn is getting lip injections and she says to her doctor, there are only three ages in Hollywood, babe, district attorney, and driving Miss Daisy. (laughs) I would love to hear from you what your thoughts are about what you were trying to address with the topic of ageism in your book. Yeah, so I think... One issue is the question around intergenerational conflict and how we think about the climate crisis, environmentalism. I think there's a certain very simplistic narrative of us against them, um, this generation screwed over that generation, which I think often misses the point. Yeah, I agree. In in a lot of ways that, um, again, we would do much better in coalition than we are when we blame another generation, rather than actually thinking about the kind of structural inequities that brought us to the... Because really, actually, this is the silent spring generation. This is the generation that brought us environmentalism as we know it. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a... I didn't want to overwrite the point in the novel, but there's a character who says, as things are kind of literally blowing up around them, you know, sort of, I told them, you know, sort of, I said it then, said it 40 years ago. So so that was something that I... um, wanted to sort of bridge. And another issue is about this desire to humanize both ends of the age marginalization spectrum, right? Because when we're young, we don't have voting rights yet. We don't have kind of a full citizenship. We're, we're not in the age of majority. We're not fully formed. Yeah. And, and we don't have full agency. I mean, that's part of what makes child poverty so sad that you're in this situation and you really um, can't do much about it. I mean, there's no like, oh, we'll get a job. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's the invisibility, the stereotyping over determination that happens with old age, or even just small conventions like um, if, if, if someone guesses your age and they guess correctly, they're dishing you an insult if you're over 25. And there is this wrong, in my eyes, stigma around once you hit a certain age, life stops. Yeah. And learning stops. And essentially, you've done all you can and you've given all you can to society. But as people get older, you know, we're living longer and we are doing things later in life. So women are having children later in life. Women are choosing not to have children. Women are getting married later in life. They're choosing not to get married. And all of these options are available to us based on things that happened in those older generations. 
in those previous generations. For sure. And I just, I can't imagine how it must feel to be 60 or 65 or 70, knowing that you might have another 20, 20, 30 years of life yeah. to go, but feeling completely written off mainstream society. But there's room for both of us, so Absolutely. I don't I don't understand why it has to be that way, which is essentially what you're celebrating in your book, is the sense that, and I loved the fact that we are hearing from this older generation, which I feel is, as you said, written off sometimes in literature and definitely in society today, which brings us on to Mrs. Tyburn. She is a very quirky character. I think that's that's a good way of putting it. So for those who haven't read the book yet, I'm not giving too much away, but Mrs. Tyburn is an older woman who lives on the island that uh, the kid works for, and she essentially has been tasked with digitizing Mrs. Tyburn's archives of pictures, and sometimes Mrs. Tyburn asks the kid to alter them and amend them so much that the original picture is unrecognizable and people in the pictures are being made to look thinner, they're being made to look more bustier, they're being made to look like they had the best life and it just conjures up so many questions and so many thoughts. She's tasked her with this big project and I think it's safe to say that that concept of the past um, as we've just been touching on past generations and those who have paved the way for us is something that has a power over us that doesn't really go away and it shapes the way we end up as older adults and I was just wondering as the kid reflects over her childhood throughout the book and we see flashbacks of her being with her mom her being with her dad or being with her parents with her grandmother why do you think the past really is almost like a ghost that follows us around as we get older yeah, I think that there's some sense in what we might be able to recuperate when we think about the past and how we interpret it. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, like memory is always this uh, system of interpretation rather than some kind of objective record of what factually happened. That's even being used in, in certain kinds of therapies um, to reposition your past or um, to even kind of um, reconstruct memory is one that can be really, really uh, edifying and empowering people who are you know sort of maybe continuing to live with the effects of trauma but then there's also this this question of what really happened sort of between generations a, a parent and child might say you know sort of i remember it this way so it definitely was this way and um and if, if you can kind of uh, have the uh, hard evidence mm -hmm. like a picture yeah. yeah i was thinking about um what resources we need to build the past. Reconstruct it, yeah. yeah. In order to be the people that we want to be now. But also the ways in which uh, digital technology gives us not so much things that we um, end up even kind of looking at, but but this, this archive, this proof that we were there was really this way. Is this super time-consuming preoccupation and is often one that's attributed to younger people, yeah. to a kind of Instagram generation. Uh, but I think a lot of people have an interest in making sure that their history has the proof of the person that they want to show them. It makes me a bit nostalgic for when I was younger, when I was taking photos with an actual camera, I was developing film, you had this anxiousness of how the photos were actually going to turn out. There was something quite wholesome about the photos because they were organic and they were something that you hadn't touched. And that's what I found so fascinating about Mrs. Tyburn's request to alter these photos and, as you say, reconstruct this memory, but almost to go back and fix the things that needed fixing. But then that doesn't really make the memory 
real, does it? Well, I think that there's something here about history and power, and it's the ruling class who gets to write history. Mrs. Tyburn is the wealthiest person on the island. Yeah, that's true. And, um, and she's definitely kind of empowered to construct her history in a way that makes her presence seem inevitable. I, I particularly wanted to do this, and um, this is a little bit crass, but um, through the, the alterations of her breasts, and she has these breast implants. And so the kid has to gradually go through and make her breasts a yeah. different yeah. size, different years. Yeah. And so I think that that's a lot of the way that um, that ruling classes reconstruct histories. But it seems as though the way we are now is completely natural and inevitable and um, the, the process of totally organic forces. But this is all through a careful construction of narrative, which is about angling. And some of it is just straight up lies. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that in a way... Mrs. Tyburn was kind of living vicariously through the kid in the sense that she was doing this to impress the kid because she wouldn't have known her as a young woman with her family. Do you think maybe that in a way or did I interpret that a bit differently? No, I think you've got that exactly right because uh, really the kid's the only one who's going to see these images and you do get the sense of Mrs. Tyburn, um, I hope, as a as a kind of lonely person um, without lots and lots of people who are, hey, show me your snapshot before. Exactly. But she does have to keep up this appearance of being this wealthy, well-to-do woman on the island. And she has a reputation to uphold, I think, in a way. And it is interesting that you touch on the, the change in her breasts because having breasts is a very female thing. And they obviously change throughout our life. And the fact that she wants that to be more recognizable or to be seen as more natural and more gradual is very interesting in the sense that it is a very female symbol, I think, of being very womanly. She very much has the agency to be in charge of the construct of identity. Yes. And she... Which is a privilege. Yeah, It's, it's a massive privilege. Yeah, and she had the resource, have this audience of one. Yeah, exactly. Um, to, to kind of witness uh, her version of history. And I think this question of identity, which is constant throughout the book, it's the citizens of Swan Island are constantly questioning their identities but again they're very proud of who they are they're not apologizing for who they are which is again like the kid which is why I think she does fit so well in that environment and one of my favorite scenes in the book is the birthday chapter and I messaged you when I was reading this and you said that that was one of the first things that you wrote so the kid bakes herself a birthday cake and it's beautiful. And she cuts herself a slice and removes it from the cake. And then she, you know, is perfectly formed. And then she decides against it and puts it back. And then she doesn't just leave the cake. She decides that she's going to take the cake and she's going to subsequently throw it off the cliff where her house is. And there's a line at the very end of that chapter, which is, everyone was born who gives a shit. And as I kind of mentioned to you when I was messaging you, she is such a force. And particularly that birthday scene, I felt like every time the kid celebrated an aspect of her existence, there was a voice in her head that challenged that and made her question just how very special she is. Not just because she's the only young person on the island, but just that she is a very special person. And I was just wondering, as the writer and creator of this character, what do you think makes her particularly special? There's a a resourcefulness that I think characterizes a, a lot of different kinds of marginalized people. Um, this kind of 
ingenuity that you have to develop when things aren't certain, uh, when you have to um, go out and find food or make opportunities. There's a, a sense of uh, adaptability and humor that you have to cultivate. And so for me, the things that make her vulnerable to a lot of the dangers of life, uh, her race, her gender, her age, um, her class status, are also the things that uh, have helped her to cultivate the, the qualities that, that help her um, get through a lot of these vulnerabilities. So, uh, I see her as somebody who's fun to be with on the page because she really knows how to navigate the world for some of the best and worst reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And I haven't asked this yet, and I wasn't going to because I kind of like the idea of it being a mystery, but I think my curiosity is going to win. Why did you name her The Kid? The moniker The Kid is one that, that's kind of been settled on by publishers. I mean, I'm, I'm happier thinking of her as an unnamed narrator. Um, like, like the narrator in Invisible Man, um, where you, you kind of get to the end and you think, wait, what was their name? There's a, a sense of disenfranchisement that I think comes with the unnamed narrator. The sense of a, a difficulty in, in pinning them down, because um, when someone has a name, they, they kind of have a place and an identity. And this was something that was constantly being withheld, the narrator. So I know what her name is, but she's not in a place where anyone calls her by her name. In a way, I think it also allows the reader to put themselves in her shoes and to essentially remember or identify or even align with the way she's feeling or what she's thinking or what she's saying. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that when I was the kid. And elder generations can be like, oh yeah, the kid. It kind of reminded me of a 1930s black and white film, like His Girl Friday, where you know it's like the kid and, and all that stuff, the rookie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 I love that. I really love that. So another one of my favorite scenes is in chapter seven, and it's a very vulnerable scene, and I really loved it. And it is when the kid strips down and allows the sun to penetrate every inch of her. So she leaves her house, she removes her t-shirt and underwear, and she is naked, sat against the back of the cliff that is eroding and coming down every little bit, every day. And she just has this moment to herself. It almost made me cry because it was just so beautiful. And I feel like, you know, it made me think of the lack of these types of scenes in literature, this women being with themselves, both physically and spiritually. And it wasn't about sex. It wasn't about a man. We do see a man in, in her life. It comes over to the island during visitation days. But it, it wasn't about that, this scene. It was about a young woman and her body. And I was wondering if you could talk around this and to really tell us what you wanted readers to take away from this scene. I mean, I think that, that you really got what I was after with this scene. I wanted to show the flip side of the solitude and isolation and rejection that he characterizes her journey. Mm -hmm. It's all of the enriching things about solitude and the ability to, uh, yeah, really be with yourself. And also to give the reader a glimpse of what allows her to persist despite really um, sometimes quite hopeless situations. Yeah, limitations. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And um, uh, I think that she needed to be able to have herself and, um, and know and, and be solid with herself because she's a community of one.
Yeah, exactly. But also to feel and to remind herself that she is first and foremost a young woman and that she has a responsibility to herself to just be herself. And it's a vulnerability. I think this idea of of being naked and being at your most vulnerable, and ironically your birthday suit, which made me think about the birthday part, is just so beautiful. As women, we don't alone moments where she could be yeah with herself and for herself that felt empowering oh i just i love it so much it's just so good and you know there are those moments of pleasure throughout the book but there is also those moments of pain and in chapter 10 in particular the kid does something i found quite out of character for her but at the same time i wasn't all that surprised at her need to feel something. I feel like she was in a lot of pain thinking about her mom and her dad, about the ghosts of her grandmother. And she essentially is just feeling terrible. She's taken some Valium and she's trying to balance herself. And she finds a kitchen knife and she stabs herself in the leg with it. And I genuinely felt that stab in my leg. And I feel like you don't have to actually have it happen to you to to have that jolt to feel that that burst of pain and as she channels these ghosts of her mother and her grandmother it's also a moment of self-reflection for her which she does throughout the book but this in particular resonated with me and I was just wondering why do you think these two things pain and reflection really often go hand in hand I would address this through the confusing situation of family separation and I think there's a very particular, uh, very bewildering kind of grief mm-hmm. that comes with being separated from people and not knowing where they are, if they're alive or dead. Mm-hmm. Um, in dealing with the bereavement, this is also a completely mind-blowing experience, but there's a, a sense of uh, certainty where you sort of, w- within this abyss, there's a, a name for it. With the separation experience, there's a kind of um, need to know um, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. I think that the self-harm in that moment was her attempt to reconnect with something real and concrete and painful but an identifiable pain. Sort of, um, I'm in pain because of this wound. And the sense of just um, when will this all end, uh, that for me felt like a, a kind of grounding experience and something that she could actually do. Is it correct, and this is how I interpreted it in a way, everyone else had harmed her or caused pain to her. She didn't really have control over that. So her parents left her, her grandmother died. She has this feeling of rejection, this feeling of loss. And this is pain that she actually was in control of. I think that that's fair. She's been really at the mercy of all sorts of social, economic, yeah. uh, meteorological forces. And just, yeah, taking some agency mm. can feel um, like a relief. One of the last lines of your book that really struck with me, uh, I'm going to read it now. Yeah, there's so many beautiful lines in this book, but this one really stuck with me. When my hair is white and my body's broad and round, the islands will all be different. The maps in my head will look ridiculous. And this is the kid speaking. And to me, this line was super relevant 
for me, it was super relevant, I think, for today. And I think as we've been talking about getting older, we know that the world will continue to change. It will, it will continue to look different. And the maps in our head will look ridiculous probably for future generations. I have yet to even fathom what history books will say about this time in our lives. And I'm just wondering, how do you think older generations have really helped us shape the world and you know, the, essentially the world we live in and how can we as a younger generation help shape the maps for, for the future? Well, I'd love something that Angela Davis says, which is mm. freedom is a constant struggle. And we um, can sometimes have this sense that we're inevitably kind of tilting towards a greater and greater uh, uh, progress, mm-hmm. inclusion, um, equality. The real fact is that um, people are driving that. When I think about my own family and the fact that just a couple of generations ago, women in my family didn't have basic human rights, even recognition as human people. The fact that my parents' right to vote wasn't guaranteed until they were approaching adulthood. And so uh, me being a a kind of fully recognized human being, passport and an education, is something that I can't take for granted. The engine of emancipation is um, not a perpetual motion machine. That's what I want to be a part of, and I want to be a good ancestor. Yeah, absolutely. And your book is a beautiful story that is contributing to that engine of change and that engine of progress. And I know without a doubt that this is a book that not only current generations will pick up, but future generations as well and look at it as a a conduit, a beacon towards ultimate change. And I just want to congratulate you for this incredible work of art and story. And I just loved it so much. And as I said, it's one of my favorites of this year. And I feel like the kid and all the other characters in the book, but obviously as your main character, the kid will always hold a very special place in readers' hearts. I feel like the kid represents both the good and bad in ways because you can't have good without bad and and vice versa. And I feel like you learn more from, from the bad than you do the good sometimes. But in a way the kid represents this quest for change and for progress. And if I learned anything from your book, the beautiful, for me, moral of the story is that there shouldn't be a divide between different generations because we can learn so much from each other. And I truly hope that this lesson is learned from more people who are doing good in the world today and that leads us to the change and the progress that we so need. And I think that we're very grateful, or I'd like to say that we're grateful and and privileged to be part of that change today. So I'm so pleased that your story is is guiding us towards that, so that's great. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think um, that's so gratifying to hear and the mark that I hope to be able to uh, make with this this novel. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to come on to the end. Very sad, but very exciting at the same time. So part of the premise of this podcast is I would love for you to imagine that your book has been placed on a shelf, Great Literature Frozen in Time, and I would love to know what other books and the authors of those books that have influenced you and really resonated with you uh, as a writer, as a reader, which books you would want alongside your book on that shelf. Yeah, that's such a fantastic question. I think that there are definitely a few that I feel a a great feeling of gratitude, and so, so I'm going to kind of 
pick on those. Excellent. One that I mentioned a little earlier, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, I found so potent and stirring and, and wrenching, and one that works on so many parts of our kind of um, emotional body. That's one that I would be privileged to be near. Definitely Coming of Age by Simone de Beauvoir, and uh, from the nonfiction but, but beautiful nonfiction side as well, uh, a book called Cruel Optimism, which totally went into the way that I thought about the notion of attachment and our relationship to the future as we kind of go forward into a period of uncertainty. So Cruel Optimism by Lauren Berlant. And finally, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Mm. I think it's Tony Morrison. amazing to read debuts as you're writing your debut book and to think about the way that a young, poor, black female approaches a world and um, prepares to emerge into a world that, that really tells you that your place is to be small yeah. and not to love who you are is both terrifying and enraging mm-hmm. in a way that I found um, actually quite empowering I, like I could take that anger somewhere that's a fantastic bookshelf I was just gonna say again an example of a generation that has paved the way for Absolutely. for great literature and I'm just so pleased that your book is on the shelves for us to read today so thank you so much season it has been absolutely incredible talking to you today I really appreciate thank it thank you for having me really really great to chat with you thanks for listening to this episode of shelf life I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it either on twitter or instagram or by leaving a review on itunes Until next time, happy reading!